a fuller, more fleshed-out understanding of our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines, and the sacrifices they and their families make. They are bound by oath to carry out the plans of our commander-in-chief, for better or worse. I came to know the disconnect in our country between its scholar class and its warrior class, which Nathaniel Fick, former Marine and Ivy League grad, summarizes as, Our thinking is done by cowards, and our fighting is done by fools. I also learned that once Pandora's box is opened, such as with the aggressive display of shock and awe our government unleashed in Iraq in 2002, the precious veneer of civility descends into bone-aching, bloody chaos. There is no turning back. Whether we agree politically or not with the actions that our U.S. government takes, I have come to appreciate the personal sacrifice made by our enlisted men and women. Each of them has a story, a story about why they chose to serve our country, and a story about somebody at home waiting for them to return, waiting to nurse their wounds or to lay them to rest. May God bless those who have made this sacrifice. For more information on the UU Church of Davis, please visit our website at www.uudavis.org. The Davis High Journalism Program presents Local News from a Student Perspective. Welcome to this week's Dirt on Davis. For years, DHS's orchestra programs have been recognized for their abilities. The Symphony Orchestra is being praised for its work after the June issue of Downbeat Magazine came out this month and hit newsstands nationwide. Kelsey Ewing has the story. One of the final DHS events of the year is the annual card show, which took place on Wednesday, May 25th, and brought crowds of curious students to the high school quad. Rubia Siddiqui with co-producer Monica Lopez-Lara has the story. Thank you for tuning into this week's Dirt on Davis. This is Grace Calhoun signing out. Dr. Angelo Moreno and his orchestra will be recognized as the best classical high school group in the nation. Number one, they were really shocked. Uh, and really excited about it, and I think I'm really honored to have been recognized for all their hard work. First Chair Basis and DHS Senior Katie Ronning acknowledged that the competition is naturally fierce. There's a lot of really great orchestras out there too, and uh, you know, we can always get better. However, the orchestra had a head start on many of the other applicants. The group meets four days a week, and members are required to play an additional 120 minutes outside of school every week. That, in comparison to most symphonies, um, is about twice as much time as most groups get in a week. Um, most college symphonies play two days, two nights a week. Most professional symphonies play three times before a concert. And so we get a lot, a lot of time to get it right. Not only has the symphony orchestra been praised for its work, but also the DHS music program as a whole was recently recognized by the Grammy Signature Foundation. And that was kind of a big deal because that means that uh, as a department, we submit CDs and all the information about our music department as a whole. And we have to have excellence in every single group to be able to win that sort of award. Uh -huh. The Symphony Orchestra, along with the Baroque Ensemble and Chamber Orchestra, 
will play in their final concert of the year on Thursday, May 26th. This has been Kelsey Ewing with BlueDevilHub.com. One of the final DHS events of the year is the annual car show, which took place on Wednesday, May 25th, and brought crowds of curious students to the high school quad. Rubia Siddiqui with co-producer Monica Lopez-Lara have the story. DHS's annual car show took place on Wednesday, May 25th. Although this year brought cloudy skies and rain to the quad, many students still gathered around the cars to bask in their glory. Senior and student government member Emma McNeil helped organize the event. She says the categories for nomination are Best Stereo, Best 4x4, People's Choice, Best Exterior, Best Interior, Best Wheels, and Best Classic. We started putting out applications three and a half weeks ago, and we had to postpone the car show until a week later than what we were planning, which was May 25th instead of May 18th. Senior Clayton Jimenez entered his 1963 Cadillac DeVille. He says his favorite part of his car is a black and white leather interior, which he says was redone two years ago. He entered the DeVille into Best Interior, Best Classic, Best Exterior, and People's Choice. I don't know. It's just, it's unique. It's one of its, it's like a old classic, it's like a luxury car, and it's like one of its only, it's one of the only kinds here, I guess, of that kind of car. Like, we have a bunch of classics, but all of them are like, more like muscle cars or something like that, and this is the only car that's like long and supposed to be luxurious. Junior Michael Yen also participated in what was his second car show by entering his Chevy Camaro in Best Exterior and People's Choice. Yen is not optimistic about winning because he has noticed that other cars have received more attention than his. No, I know. I'm not disappointed. Last year I was kind of disappointed, though, because... But last year they had way better cars than mine, I'm not going to lie. But this year I definitely thought I deserved to be, like, I don't know, top five cars. I, there was an awesome Mustang. There was, like, a Ferrari... And then there was just, like, some really stupid cars. Although he doesn't expect to win, he will not be disappointed because he participates to increase school spirit rather than to win a prize. Oh, I don't think I should win. I I mean, it would be nice to win. I don't I don't think that I have to win or anything. Um, I just, I just uh, want to be part of, like, the school spirit thing, you know? According to McNeil, the cars that received the most attention were the Ferrari Cadillac and a truck with an impressive sound system. This is Rabia Siddiqui, BlueDevilHub.com. Thank you for tuning into this week's Dirt on Davis. This is Grace Calhoun, signing out. This podcast is a production of KCRW Public Radio in Santa Monica, California. Before we start the program, we want to take a second to tell you about something really exciting happening at KCRW. It's our summer membership drive. As you may or may not know, KCRW's programs and our podcasts are supported by those of you who listen. It's your voluntary contributions that allow KCRW to produce this kind of thought-provoking, intelligent, and outspoken programming. If you enjoy and get something out of listening to this podcast, think about investing in KCRW and the value of non-commercial media. Donating is really easy and takes only a moment. All you have to do is call 800-600-KCRW or make your donation online at kcrw.com. Oh, and you could even win a trip to Barcelona or Costa Rica. So thank you very much, and now on to the program. Here it is! 
from deep inside your radio. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it, it looks like a virus crossed the Atlantic this week. And I don't mean MRSA. Um, just as, well, just a day after, I think, a jury, a federal jury in New Orleans convicted half a dozen New Orleans police of uh, involvement in a conspiracy in, uh, related to the, the shooting down of uh, unarmed civilians on the Danziger Bridge in the wake of the flooding in New Orleans in 2005. Either the same day or the day after, as those people were perp-walked away, a uh, crowd protesting in London against the shooting of an apparently unarmed civilian uh, was overtaken by apparently what, what are being called thugs who staged a, a, ri- a riot in London. Imagine that. Pardon me, sir. I'm going to burn your bus now. I imagine it's like that, but of course it isn't. To uh, get you up to date on news of News Corp, not a lot this week, but what there is is good. Mmm, good. You remember Rebecca Brooks, the flame-haired chief of uh, Rupert Murdoch's operations? News International, the uh, operations in Europe and Asia. She resigned last month under fire after Rupert Murdoch had said, no, she's my priority when he first came over here to London to uh, to clean up the mess. Uh, but in fact, after the ur- the public urging of a Saudi prince who owns 7% of News Corp, how you doing, Prince? Nice to see you. Uh, Rebecca Brooks was uh, was resigned with some public ceremony. Now we learn, you see, she's still on the payroll. So it's a different kind of resignation. It's that kind of resignation where you just get to stay home and get paid. She's been told by Rupert Murdoch to go traveling for a year until the scandal dies down. Um... Uh, This is my hand raised. I'll put in for that deal, too, sir, while you're offering them. A News International spokesman said, we decline to comment on the financial arrangements of any individual. Really? I'm not so sure about that. I'm not so sure that policy holds. uh, Let me check my archives and get back to you, News Corporation spokesperson. They're over here. No, nothing in my archives. But now, ladies and gentlemen. High def, low def, no def, take my hand. It's a digital wonderland. News of a digital wonderland for you. Got to be so careful where you stand. In the digital wonderland. This from the Los Los Angeles has a daily news. Interesting. Radio Shack, it reports, has every one of its house brand HD radios, HD radios, on clearance sale if they're still in stock. Meaning Radio Shack is essentially going out of the HD radio business. Radio Shack was one of the early supporters of the wacky medium. The technology says the Daily News is not dead, but it certainly isn't flourishing. You can still buy car stereos with HD radio. But according to the uh, item, item in the uh, Daily News, two, just two things went wrong with HD radio. Content and marketing. Okay, aside from that, everything's fine. 
Content and marketing. What? News of the new F-bomb, ladies and gentlemen. Recon Trust Company. It's, it sounds trustworthy, doesn't it? Recon Trust. It sounds actually like, the, like, it's, like it's a combination bank and uh, fumigator. Recon Trust. It's a subsidiary of Bank of America, actually. It's being sued now by the state of Washington for allegedly conducting illegal foreclosures on thousands of Washington homeowners. Yes, it's just getting bigger. Recon Trust ignored our warnings, repeatedly broke the law, and refused to provide information requested during our investigation, according to Washington Attorney General Rob McKenna. I believe he's a Republican. Recon Trust's illegal practices make it difficult, if not impossible, he says, for for borrowers who might have a shot at saving their homes to stop those foreclosures. State charges Recon Trust violated state laws in thousands, as I say. Um, McKenna says, among the problems, an essential requirement of the deed of trust statute in Washington is that the trustee maintains an office in the state where homeowners can go to ask questions, make last-minute payments, and request a foreclosure be postponed for a legitimate reason. However, he said Recon Trust doesn't have an office in the state of Washington. Quote, Recon Trust claim that the company doesn't have to follow Washington state law and procedures because it is a national bank is wrong, he says. The charges also include allegations the company failed to identify the actual owner of the promissory notes being foreclosed. You've heard about this from Eve Smith on this broadcast. Foreclosed or sorry, provided confusing information regarding how borrowers defaulted and how they can cure that default and created or permitted the use of documents that were improperly executed, notarized, or sworn to. Notices and agreements contained conflicting dates and improper notarizations, and Recon Trust employees sometimes signed as officers of other entities. Too much recon, not enough trust. Hello, welcome to the show. From London, England, where the world's money goes to get dry cleaned, I'm Harry Shearer welcoming you to this edition of the show. Speaking of money, speaking of banks, um, if you're worried about the banks, ladies and gentlemen, if you're worried that they may not uh, have enough revenue streams, here's one. Here's a new one. Bank of New York Mellon Corporation. It's a bank, not a melon company. This week took the extraordinary step of telling large clients it will charge them for the service of holding their cash. They're not paying interest on the cash. No, 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 no. You, the large company, are paying the bank to hold your cash. Cute. I like it. Bank of New York Mellon has has other problems being uh, targeted by the New York State Attorney General for, you know, the usual stuff. This from the Wall Street Journal, and no, Rupert, I didn't pay to read it. Um... Uh, The unusual move by Bank of New York Mellon means some U.S. depositors will have to pay to keep big chunks of money in a bank, a stark new phase of the long-running global financial thing. Federal corporations and investors have been socking away, sorry, fearful corporations and investors have been socking away cash in their bank accounts rather than put it into even the safest investments, one reason why the economy is stalling. So now the giant bank, which specializes in handling funds for financial institutions and corporations, will begin assessing a fee this week on customers who've been flooding the bank with dollars. Individual savers aren't affected. They're already stuck with near zero interest rates. 
but um, apparently it costs money to store money. Bank of uh, New York finds its deposits, quote, suddenly and substantially increasing, increasing as investors are in a mass de-risk mode. The bank says the decision was driven by the fact it cannot invest much of the new deposits because clients have the ability to move the funds out at any moment. Other banks haven't yet followed the Bank of New York, but some analysts speculate rivals may follow suit. Corporate executives took a dim view of the new fee. If it's true, I think it's atrocious, said the chief financial officer of Champions Life Insurance Company. Well, I think life insurance is atrocious. There you go. The fastest growing asset on bank balance sheets this year is cash. Holding cash comes at a cost to banks. Here we go. Bank of New York and others pay fees of about one, sorry, 0.1% to the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation for insurance. So if there's a lot of cash coming in, that could be big money. All right. Shed a tear, won't you? I'll hold the hanky. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let's, let's not ignore the core. This is the latest about the core of engineers. And uh, to be followed up by uh, more information on a related subject. So settle in. The process the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers used to award a six... Uh, let, me, let me backtrack here. If you've seen The Big Uneasy or if you've heard uh, Maria Gar- Garzino on this show, the whistleblower from inside the Corps of Engineers, talk about the new pumps at the heart of the new improved system, the hurricane risk reduction system, don't you know, in New Orleans... You know that there are, uh, uh, she has raised questions, and those questions have been backed by the U.S. Office of Special Counsel about the reliability and the effectiveness, the efficacy, if you will, of the new pumps, which the Corps of Engineers uh, now denominates as temporary pumps with a lifespan of from five to seven years. And as I noted on June 1st, we've just entered year six. Okay, so now a couple months ago, the Corps finally put out a contract for the new new pumps, the permanent new pumps, which will replace the new temporary pumps. And that's where this story comes in. The process the Corps used to award that $675 million contract to a New Orleans firm that had hired an official who formerly worked for the Corps, that process was flawed, according to the Government Accountability Office. It ruled the Corps must revise the bid and obtain new proposals for the project, which will delay the new pumps, the new permanent pumps, even more than the optimistically scheduled three years that the Corps had said. The bid process was challenged soon after it awarded the uh, contract by two of the other firms that bid on the project. The GAO noted several flaws in the process used to award the contract. In particular, the Corps failed to properly evaluate the the winning bidder's technical proposal for pump station operation. You see, didn't evaluate their proposal for the technical thing, for the operation of the thing they were bidding. <laughs> and the bidders may have been, quote, misled about the role of price in the evaluation. In addition, the Corps failed to properly investigate and mitigate an unfair competitive advantage, organizational conflict of interest arising from this company's hiring of the Corps' chief of program execution of the Hurricane Protection Office, the office responsible for this project and this procurement. Just a little conflict of thing. Just a little conflict of 
However, lest you think that there's shame-facedness at the Army Corps of Engineers in New Orleans, au contraire, mon frère, members of the Army Corps of Engineers have won several awards given by the agency itself. The Corps of New Orleans says its team was given awards at an agency summer conference in New Orleans. Boy, is that nerve. This past Monday, the Corps News release said the team won the awards for the, quote, hard work and, quote, professional excellence to reduce risk for the people of the greater New Orleans area, unquote. New Orleans Corps staff won awards for work done after the flood that was caused by the failure of the Corps. And some counties and cities that hired private contractors to cart off debris from April's tornadoes in Alabama paid significantly less for the work by hiring private contractors than those local governments who relied for the debris removal on hands, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. The Corps has in the past refused to disclose its rates even to some local officials using its services. No, don't worry about it. We'll just send you the thing. The Corps confirmed this past week its cost for removing debris in Alabama, averaging $46 a cubic yard. That's almost two times the rate the city of Birmingham Birmingham, reported paying private contractors during the first 30 days of its storm cleanup. The Corps' price is more than three times the rate paid in nearby counties, more than four times the rate paid in Calhoun County, more than five times the rate paid by the city of Hansville. Not Pantsville, Hansville. We've saved the taxpayers millions of dollars, said the mayor of Hansville, Kenneth Nail. Not Hale, Nail, who said he hired a North Carolina construction firm to remove storm debris. FEMA says the price comparisons may be deceptive. The course rates cover expenses such as auditing that are not included in contracts with private firms. Those that hired private debris removal contractors did have to pay costs up front and grapple with FEMA to get reimbursed, while those that use the core will pay just their share after the work is complete. Still, the price beat the core by far. Calhoun County paid less than $11 per cubic yard, even though it hired three contractors to do the work to, or to monitor and manage it. The core, ladies and gentlemen, their motto, building strong. And since... Since they trademarked that motto, it has now been amended, building strong and taking care of people, with an exclamation point at the end. And um, your your definition of taking care of people is uh, uh, will be uh, gratefully received at the Corps' uh, email address, I'm sure. And now, uh, in a somewhat related subject, I did mention the big uneasy and people who have been interviewed on the subject of the problems discussed in The Big Uneasy. One of them, a familiar name to you perhaps, Dr. Ivor, Van, Dr. Ivor Van Heerden, formerly Deputy Director of the LSU Hurricane Center. Uh, on this broadcast and in the film, uh, we went into some detail on his removal from his posts, from his faculty positions, uh, and, and the closing down of the Hurricane Center, purportedly as a result of LSU's disapproval of his research findings with regard to culpability for the flooding, namely the Army Corps of Engineers. This week, 
the American Association of University Professors, which investigated the matter, issued its report. And I'm going to share with you for the next few minutes some of what it says. The Vice Chancellor of LSU, Vice Chancellor Ruffner, wrote in 2006 in the early post-flood era, quote, LSU will engage in helping with the recovery of Louisiana, not in pointing blame. The Chancellor has begun initiatives toward this goal, and it would not be useful to have the university associated intentionally or not with efforts aimed at causation, unquote. This is while Dr. Von Heerden was heading Team Louisiana looking into what caused the flooding. says the AAUP, that an administrator would instruct hurricane scientists not to seek causes of hurricane destruction is difficult for this committee to comprehend, the more so because of the explicit charge that Team Louisiana had received from the state's Department of Transportation, i.e., find out the cause. After Team Louisiana's final report became national news in March 2007, renewing criticism of the Army Corps of Engineers, an administrator sent a string of links to stories in the national media asking how the publicity surrounding Ivor's Team Louisiana report would, quote, affect our efforts, unquote, further email correspondence among the administrators, their eyes on, quote, as much as $350 million in federal grants or funding, documents their continued attempts to make sure that state and federal legislatures and officials, quote, know the difference between Ivor and the rest of LSU, unquote. The evidence in this report of hostility from LSU administrators to Professor Von Heerden's public opposition to their position on post-Katrina flooding is at abundant. The investigating committee of AAUP, unimpressed by the LSU administration's stated reasons for its decision not to retain him, has no doubt that the decision was to a significant extent in retaliation for his opposition to their position. This investigating committee does not hesitate in reaching a finding that LSU's action against Professor Von Heerden, largely if not entirely because of his dissent, violated his academic freedom. The investigating committee of the American Association of University Professors finds abundant reason to believe that the LSU administration acted against Professor Van Heerden out of displeasure with and in retaliation for his extramural whistleblowing activity with regard to the Army Corps of Engineers and the failed New Orleans levees. Although the Corps of Engineers itself eventually admitted responsibility for levee failures, the LSU administration feared loss of the revenue controlled by the Corps. The investigating committee of the AAUP finds that the administration acted in this regard for reasons that violated Professor Van Heerden's academic freedom again Professor Van Heerden is currently suing LSU. Not for a bad football team, by the way. And, of course, that, uh, the, whole, the whole committee report is available online for those of you who want to read parts of it to yourself with uh, moody music. And now... News from outside the bubble. 
Dateline Berlin. This is from Agence France Presse. Body scanners being tested at Germany's Hamburg airport have had a thumbs down from the police who say they trigger an alarm unnecessarily in seven out of ten cases. The weekly Welt am Sonntag, quoting a police report, says 35% of the 730,000 passengers checked by the scanners set off the alarm more than once despite being innocent. The report said the machines were confused by several layers of clothing, boots, zip fasteners, and even pleats. While in 10% of cases, the passengers' posture set them off. The police called for the software to be improved. Not the same machines we have, by the way. Ours are so much better. And from The Guardian in London, a top-secret document revealing how MI6 and MI5, that's basically the CIA and FBI officers in Britain, were allowed to extract information from prisoners being illegally tortured overseas, has been seen by the newspaper. The interrogation policy instructed senior intelligence officials to weigh the importance of the information being sought against the amount of pain they expected a prisoner to suffer. The policy was in operation by the British government for almost a decade. A copy of the policy showed senior intelligence officers and government officials feared the British public could be at greater risk of a terrorist attack if Islamists became aware of the existence of the policy. And that such a disclosure could result in damage to the reputation of the agencies. And that could undermine their effectiveness. This interrogation policy document may not be made public during an official inquiry into British complicity in torture and rendition. So, the judge won't know it, but the rest of us do. News from Ice the Bubble, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. This very broadcast. People ask me questions about the way I've spent my life. 30 years in showbiz only had one wife limousines and swimming pools I didn't get myself thank you thank you from London this is the show ladies and gentlemen now news of the warm without without our regular music for uh, complicated reasons that will be explained shortly no they won't that's a nice noise, isn't it? Want to hear that again? No, of course you don't. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, a team of scientists say they have found, Danish researchers actually, have analyzed ancient pieces of driftwood in North Greenland, which they say is an accurate way to measure the extent of ancient ice loss. They say current concerns over a tipping point in the disappearance of Arctic sea ice may be misplaced. Writing in the journal Science, the team found evidence that the ice levels were about 50% lower 5,000 years ago. They say changes to wind systems can slow the rate of melting. They argue, therefore, that a tipping point under current scenarios is unlikely. Dr. Sven Funder from the National History Museum of Denmark led several expeditions to inhospitable regions of northern Greenland. The team noticed several pieces of ancient driftwood. They concluded it could be an important method of unlocking the secrets of the ancient ice. Carbon dating was used to determine the age of the wood and figuring out it. Well, anyway, that's their their version. 
their news right now. So maybe, maybe, no, maybe no tipping point, or maybe just no tipping. That's always been my rule, um, at least in finer restaurants. Um, so ladies and gentlemen, the, um, the financial crisis got a little more crisis-like this week, as you, as you know. And um, it's, it's useful in this regard, I think, to go back not that far in history, not that far in time, to April of this very year. Don't take this guy to the racetrack. Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner. Mr. Secretary, thanks for joining Fox Business. Good to see uh, Peter. Is there a risk that the United States could lose its AAA credit rating, yes or no? No risk of that. No risk. No risk. Again, if you look, if you listen carefully now, you see the leadership of the United States of America, the president, the Republican leadership in both houses, and the Democrats recognizing now that this is the right thing to do for the economy, that we have to put in place now reforms that bring down our long-term deficits in ways that will help strengthen future growth. And that's incredibly important recognition by people and we'd like to put something in place as soon as we can so we can be begin that process. So Standard & Poor's is wrong, the United States will keep its AAA credit rating. You know people, absolutely, and pe people who look at the United States, I mean it's understandable Peter, people out, you know, who run businesses across the country, investors around the world, they look at Washington, Washington's a hard place to read and it's hard for people to look past the political rhetoric and try to understand whether the leadership of Washington is going to take the tough steps necessary to get ahead of this problem. But again, if you listen carefully now, it's enormously important what's happened just over the last few weeks. You had a bipartisan fiscal commission set out a broad target for deficit reduction. You see the President of the United States embrace that basic framework. Even House Republicans, after a long period of saying deficits don't matter, that tax cuts pay for themselves, that we could live within our means indefinitely, that growth will take care of everything are saying that we have to bring our deficits down. They have roughly the same target, $4 trillion over 10 to 12 years. So if you listen carefully now, I think the prospects for a bipartisan agreement are better than they've been in a long period of time. I think he was listening too carefully. Don't take him to the track. Direct from the virtual trading floor of Corey and Slocum Oliver, this is Mind Your Own Business. I'm Mike Tuccinello on the virtual trading floor. This week, Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi finally got to know what it feels like to be an 18-year-old girl pursued by Silvio Berlusconi. The bond markets put a bullseye on the back of Italy, and the hull of the good ship Euro appeared to have sprung a bad new leak. European banking officials convened press conferences to announce that they would convene meetings, followed by more press conferences. And the sighs of relief all came from European banking officials. Savvy investors worldwide watched the slow-motion ice dance of the U.S. government's debt limit controversy, perhaps wondering when debt plus debate started to equal debacle. Job figures that weren't as dismal as expected were all that the U.S. administration could trumpet as good economic news, and that kept the market spirits up for more than an hour before the bears were once again rampaging out of the woods, raiding the RVs of Messrs. Dow and Jones. And as if the savvy investor needed just one more shock before an August vacation, Standard & Poor's announced it was downgrading the credit rating of the U.S. to double A+. For one major player, this was an A too far. And he's over at the Money Honey Desk right now with Sylvia Meal-Argent. Thanks, Mike. 
Adam Yorty's been a Bond analyst, a Bond trader, and a Bond film fanatic. Now, at the tender age of 46, he's an angry middle-aged man on a mission. Adam, tell us about your new project. Well, thanks, Sylvia. Uh, From my vantage point as a partner at Catbird Seat Securities, I've watched uh, the three ratings agencies. Those would be Moody's, Standard & Poor's, and Fitch. uh Wield an increasing amount of power over our financial and economic decisions. And I just thought, wow, they're making a lot of money and having all this power. Why not me? Meaning you wanted to go into competition with them and form your own bond ratings agency? (laughs) Not exactly, Sylvia. Competition is a good thing for a lot of folks. Mm -hmm. But I was looking for a unique niche that would provide a unique service that could command... Unique prices? (laughs) Bingo. Uh, And that's how I came up with Yortwire. Yortwire. Mm -hmm. And what besides the name is unique about it, Adam? Well, as far as our lawyers can determine, we're the first enterprise to rate the ratings agencies. I mean, there's three of them. Mm -hmm. One of them has just downgraded U.S. credit. The other two still rated as a triple A. Now... How is someone like me or the me that I was before I became this me supposed to know which of the three opinions about the U.S. financial position to rely on? And your answer is the you that you are now. And my partners. (laughs) Each day we analyze the ratings of the three credit rating agencies. And by 4 p.m. Eastern, we issue our own set of ratings on them on a scale from AAA+. That's the best. Right. To triple double F minus minus. Well, an agency with that rating wouldn't stay in business very long. Yeah, you'd think. Well, do any of the three agencies rate that low at the moment? No, but we did go back and do some retrospective ratings just to give ourselves a baseline for current performance. Mm -hmm. And frankly, in mid-2007, all three agencies were rating poorly performing mortgages as triple A when they were packaged into securities. Well, did that earn them retrospective triple, double, F minus minuses? No, a gentleman CCC minus. Mm. It would have been lower if we could have found any evidence linking their triple A ratings to the fact they were being paid by the banks that were issuing those securities, but there had been a big fire. Well, you raise a good point, Adam. Fire? Uh, No, who pays you To rate the ratings companies, not the ratings companies, I presume. Well, we can hope. I mean, just because we may be critical uh, of their methodologies doesn't mean they have a bad business model. Mm -hmm. But uh, right now, no, Yortwire is a premium subscription product for people in the private and public sectors who need to know what we know when we know it. Of course, we have a less timely product for the media. So assuming that this is a less timely question today, would you rate Standard & Poor's more highly for downgrading U.S. credit or the other two agencies more highly for not doing so? No, that's still premium information, Sylvia. Mm. I can tell you we did give Moody's a AAA++ the day they downgraded Greece. Adam, one final question. Uh Both you and the agencies you evaluate use this system of multiple letters and pluses and minuses. Mm -hmm. To some of us, it sounds like summer school grading. (laughs) Why not just a simpler system of... Oh, A through F, or maybe go deeper into the alphabet if you need more gradations. What can I tell you, Sylvia? It works for them. Adam Yorty, rating the ratings agencies. And Adam, the way things are going, maybe one day someone will come along to rate your work. Well, eventually we hope to spin that feature off. (laughs) From the Money Honey Desk, I'm Sylvia Meal Argent. And for this week, that's all the business to mind. Next time is France, the New Italy, 
Until then, from the virtual training floor of Corium Stokum Oliver, I'm Mike Tuchinal saying, this week, mind the business of someone you love. So long. Okay, boys, step away from the ring modulator. And now, ladies and gentlemen... News of our friend, the Adam Addy. Yeah. Somebody wrote in and asked, do you have your own Twitter account yet? I don't have time for that. All right. He doesn't have time for it, ladies and gentlemen. Unlike some of us, Cotter Corporation, managers of a uranium mill in Colorado, have asked state regulators to let them stop testing the acidity of a leaking, toxic, and radioactive waste impoundment pond. To stop testing the acidity of the pond, saying conditions have become too dangerous for workers to do the testing. The Cotter efforts to reduce monitoring affect Colorado's oversight of the cleanup because state regulators rely on company data instead of conducting their own independent tests. Cotter is in the process of dismantling its shuttered uranium mill. The company has been moving 80,000 gallons of radioactive sludge and solvents into the impoundment, although regulators know the impoundment is leaking. Well, they know it. See, it's not going to be a surprise then when the sludge turns up in a river or something. Liquid waste is mixed with a material resembling cat litter that resembles it more solid. It's getting better all the time. renders it more solid. Radioactive sludge and cat litter. Mm -mm. Get me to that impoundment. Health, regulation, health regulators contend that underground clay barriers will keep new contamination in the impoundment in the impoundment and prevent trichloroethylene from reaching residents of a nearby city, Canyon City. Cotter Corporation has a plan, according to the regulators, for scaring any water birds, scaring away any water birds that might land on toxic waste. All right, so they have a plan for that, not for actually inspecting the leaks, but they know how to scare away the water birds. And that's not their specialty, see? So they, they stretched. Now, a fish-containing radioactive material turned up at the Connecticut River near Entergy Corporation's Vermont Yankee nuclear plant, according to Vermont state health regulators this week. It's another potential setback to Entergy's re- effort to keep that plant running. Vermont is the only state in the country, apparently, that... Uh, after federal regulators say a nuclear plant can stay running, uh, the state of Vermont can say, no, it can't. The state says it needs to do more testing to determine the source of the strontium-90. Remember that? If you're old enough to remember strontium-90, I'm amazed you're alive. Which can cause bone cancer and leukemia. A Vermont Yankee spokesman rejected the idea that the nuclear plant could possibly be the source of the contamination. although the governor disagrees. The groundwater sample, no, sorry, no groundwater sample from any well at Vermont Yankee has ever indicated the presence of strontium-90 or any isotope other than tritium. 
says a spokesperson for Entergy, headquartered in New Orleans. We do not know why the governor would suggest Vermont Yankee is the source. The governor did. Energy wants to keep Vermont Yankee running for another 20 years under a new license. So, hot fish. They're going to they're going to they're going to cut into the hot fish and see what they can find. Pockets of lethal levels of radiation have been detected at Japan's crippled Fuk Daiichi nuclear plant and a fresh reminder of the risks faced by workers battling to contain that accident. I wonder if TEPCO has a plan for scaring away the seabirds. Plant operator TEPCO reported this week radiation exceeding 10 sieverts, 10,000 millisieverts per hour, was found at the bottom of a ventilation stack standing between two reactors. TEPCO then said it found another spot on the stack itself where radiation exceeded that level. That level could lead to incapacitation or death after several seconds of exposure. So that's a high level, you see. That would be a high level in my, in my book, but I haven't written the book. The company used equipment to measure radiation from a distance and was unable to ascertain the exact level because the device's maximum reading is 10 sieverts, you see. TEPCO says the readings will not hinder its goal of stabilizing the reactors by January. Experts, however, warned that worker safety could be at risk if the operator prioritized hitting the deadline over protection of the workers. Workers at Daiichi are only allowed to be exposed to 250 millisieverts of radiation per year. This, just to repeat, was 10,000. I think it's higher. And French-owned nuclear power company EDF has been given permission to start the pre-construction of the third nuclear power station on the Somerset coast in Britain, a power station called Hinkley C. Hinkley C, Hinkley Do. From the announcement, it might appear the firm will send in a few bulldozers and put a fence around the site. But no, EDF must completely clear 400 acres of land and will then move more soil and rock from the site than has been moved to create the Olympic Games site in London. Also, EDF still has no formal planning permission to construct the reactor. So that would be awkward if its partner in the project, Centrica, or Centrica, decides to pull out at any stage as financial markets are advising it to. And the companies are going ahead, says the Guardian newspaper, without knowing how much the power station will cost. Its prototypes are being built in Normandy, France, and in Finland. Both of these have taken twice as long to build as expected and are turning out to be nearly twice as expensive as expected. There are fears that the design is compromised and may not be used in Britain or in India, which has planned for six reactors of the same design. Centrica, the energy company which operates most of the UK's nuclear plants and partnerships, is far from certain to stay with the project. We will only do it if it makes good sense and good returns, said Sam Laidlaw, the chief executive. It's by no means a done deal, but the whole will be. So you'll have the whole, ladies and gentlemen. Clean, safe, Addy. All might be good. All right. There it is. This just in from Addy. Ladies and gentlemen, the whole might be good. And now, the apologies of the week. 
The Kings of Leon have canceled their entire U.S. tour, saying on their website, website that lead singer Caleb Followill is suffering from vocal issues and exhaustion. Didn't a, a bird fly over him and poop in his mouth last year? I recall that. I believe so. The announcement came a day after the band apologized for abruptly ending a show in Dallas. The band is devastated, but in order to give their fans the shows they deserve, they need to take a break, the band wrote. On Friday, the singer complained it was too hot and his voice was suffering. He never came back out after saying, I'm going to go drink a beer and I'm going to throw up. Said another member of the band, a brother of the lead singer, ashamed and embarrassed by last night's fiasco, can't apologize enough, utterly gutted a million I'm sorry's. By the way, gutted is English usage that is overdue to come to the United States. I'm gutted to hear that. The Jerusalem Post has published a full-length editorial apologizing for a previous editorial, which attracted widespread criticism for its comments on last month's Oslo massacre. Friday's editorial in Israel's leading English-language daily said the original column squarely condemned the attack. However, it also inappropriately raised issues that were not directly pertinent, such as the dangers of multiculturalism and European immigration policies. So they apologize. Officials in an English town were left red-faced this week after it emerged one of the world's deadliest flowers used by Amazon hunters to make poison arrows was unwittingly planted in a public park where children play. Staff from South Lakeland District Council mistakenly planted a number of poisonous purple-flowering monkshood flowers, monkshood, sorry, in a park in Kendall, northwestern England, just yards from a children's playground. Consequences can be fatal if the plant, also known as wolf's bane, is eaten, and it can also cause heart complications, muscular weakness, nausea, and vomiting. Maybe the lead singer of... Oh, no, he didn't. The council apologized and said the flowers were planted in error. After a woman was asked to turn a T-shirt reading Marriage is So Gay inside out while attempting to visit Dollywood's Splash Country in early July, Dolly Parton has issued a personal apology for the incident. The woman was attending the park along with her wife and the children of a friend was asked by the host at Dollywood's Splash Country to turn her shirt inside out at the entrance. According to the press rep, the park has a pretty strict dress code. And the host of the park is charged with deciding whether a guest's clothing is appropriate or not. In this case, the request to turn the Marriage is So Gay t-shirt inside out was made in the spirit of the dress code. The woman complied with the request. However, Dolly sent a um, personal apology. I'm truly sorry for any hurt or embarrassment regarding the gay and lesbian t-shirt incident at Dollywood Splash Country recently, she said. Everyone knows of my personal support of the gay and lesbian community. Dollywood is a family park, and all families are welcome. We do have a policy about profanity or controversial messages on clothing or signs. It is to protect the individual wearing or carrying them, as well as to keep down fights or problems by those opposed to it at the park. We even offer free shirts in exchange to those who want to remain on the park. I am and was on tour when this was brought to my attention, and I'm looking further into the incident and hope and believe it was more policy than insensitivity. I am very sorry it happened at all. Now, that's a good apology from Miss Dolly. The day after two religious order priests were found guilty of sexually abusing children in Malta, not in Gozo, in Malta, the country's archbishop apologized to the victims and for the church's delay in investigating the allegations. 
The Missionary Society of St. Paul, the order to which the convicted priests belong, said the Vatican had removed one of the men from the priesthood and was studying the case of the other. But just weeks before being charged in court with sexually abusing boys under his care, one of them, Charles Poulos, had been absolved by the church response team and told, quote, continue taking care of the children like an honest parent. The head of marketing for Ford, Jim Farley, made comments in a, quoted in a new book, including regarding GM, we're going to beat on them and it's going to be fun. F GM, I hate them and their company. Farley told reporters that he personally apologized to his crosstown equivalent G- GM marketing boss, Joel Iwanek. Nicki Minaj performed on Good Morning America in Central Park. Her bikini top slipped, revealing her nipple. ABC spokesman Jeffrey Schneider. Hey, Jeffrey. Although we had a five-second delay in place, he says, the live East Coast feed of the concert regrettably included certain fleeting images of the performer that were taken out of later feeds in other time zones. We are sorry that this occurred. A House Republican apologized to President Obama for saying that being associated with Obama's policies would be like, quote, touching a tar baby. And the Huffington Post has apologized to Andrew Breitbart for a story that accused him of doctoring a video to stir a false controversy over a CBS reporter's question in a White House press briefing. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. On my own, how could I have known? Imagine my surprise, just a fool from a tree full of fools who can't believe his eyes. Imagine my surprise, ladies and gentlemen. In case you didn't notice, the Iraqi government, such as it is, agreed this week to accede to what were reported as stiff U.S. pressures to begin serious negotiations for U.S. troops staying in Iraq beyond the date when all U.S. troops leave Iraq. But they'll be training, you see like the, the Iraq troops trained by the Americans who killed some civilians this week. And the Iraqis reportedly were upset at the Americans because now they can't tell the difference because the Iraqis fight like Americans. <laughs> True story. And ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe, the USN 440 cable system in Japan, around the world to the facilities of the American Forces Network, up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ The Planet, 7.41 megahertz shortwave on the mighty 104 in Berlin, around the world via the Internet at two different locations, live and archived whenever you want at harryshearer.com and kcrw.com, live and archived. Available for your smartphone through Stitcher.com. Available as a free podcast from KCRW.com. And it'd be just like, stay in Iraq forever. What the hell? 
if you'd agree to join with me then, would you? Alrighty, thank you very much. Uh huh. The tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Hawaii desks. Thanks as always to Pam Halstead. Thanks again this week to Adrian Bodnam here at Global Radio. Off to Gozo. Y'all come, join him. There's plenty of room. HarryShear.com, the place to find the email address and the playlist for the music heard here on, and TheBigUneasy.com, the place to find out when The Big Uneasy opens in digital platforms next week. And uh, you can follow this program at the Harry Shearer on Twitter. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of KCRW Santa Monica, a community recognized around the world as the home of the homeless. So long from London.